Happy New Year, and it's nice to have you all back in the vault. Like me, many of you are interested in the culture of the Cold War, and especially the movies. In one of the vault's earliest episodes, I talked about my own fraught relationship with Threads, the 1984 BBC docudrama that sent me off on my strange path. Over the last couple of years, I've gotten many requests to talk about the films of the Cold War, and the only thing that's stopped me was figuring out how to do it in a way that was uniquely The Vault. If you want a review of Threads or The Day After, there are plenty of 10-minute videos on YouTube for your enjoyment, if that's the word. What I've done instead is to try to create this series that will take us on a tour through the stages of a global Cold War crisis, from peace to perdition, through the lens of Cold War film. I hope it will introduce you to some artifacts you may have never heard of before, and offer some insights into your old favorites, or your old ghosts. Remember, if you like what you hear on The Vault, consider subscribing on Patreon to get extra materials that go into making these shows, and it helps me to survive another season. Thank you for listening. In those murky depths of Cold War mythology, there are many stories that make the rounds. They're repeated in the echo chambers. One of these stories involves one Nicholas Meyer, a Hollywood director best known for his entries in the Star Trek franchise, though he might disagree. Ronald Reagan, a Hollywood actor best known for being the 40th President of the United States, and the 1987 signing of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. In this story, Reagan takes a moment to send a personal telegram to Nick Meyer after the signing of the INF Treaty. In 1983, Meyer had also directed the politically charged nuclear disaster movie of the week, The Day After. That film had been screened for Reagan at Camp David, and according to Reagan's own diaries, it had a powerful impact, leaving him, quote, greatly depressed. Four years later, after the final conclusion of the INF Treaty with the Soviet Union, Reagan wrote to Meyer. He said, don't think your movie didn't have any part of this, because it did. It's a moving and concise example of the power of art to influence policy. It's just a shame that it isn't true. In a 2010 interview with the film magazine Empire, Meyer said that the telegram was a myth, and the sentiment linking the film with the treaty didn't come from Reagan, but a friend. He theorized that the origin of the legend lay in the fact that the production team did get editing notes on the script from the White House, possibly as a joke and possibly in earnest, because Reagan really did consider himself a professional film industry guy, which he absolutely was. Despite this clarification, the story keeps echoing in that chamber of historical legends. And why? Because it's a story that seems as if it should be true, 
the empowerment of art and protest in the final culmination of the nuclear madness of the Cold War. A simple film depicted the aftermath of a nuclear war so graphically that it shook Reagan to his core and set him off on a path of disarmament and peace with the Soviet Union, or at least to Reykjavik with Gorbachev. And even if the telegram didn't actually happen, Nick Meyer still believes in the power of the day after over Reagan's deliberations. He still says that the film did contribute to Reagan's more aggressive anti-nuclear stance. In that 2010 Empire interview, he says that he knows the movie had a great deal to do with Reagan going to Reykjavik, and that Edmund Morris, Reagan's official biographer, had amplified that very point in personal exchanges. Whatever effect the day after may have had on Reagan or international diplomacy, it certainly did have an impact on Americans' perception of nuclear war and the shifting sands of domestic opinion. Meyer and the team of filmmakers behind The Day After wanted to create a world in which all of the horrors of nuclear war could be acted out in as literal and realistic a way as possible for U.S. network television in 1983. The day after became a powerful vision of nuclear war that sparked a national debate and may have changed the whole trajectory of the nuclear disarmament movement in American political life. Even if all of the details of Reagan's road to Damascus conversion are apocryphal. The day after generated political ripples before it was even released. Sally Bedell Smith, the culture reporter for the New York Times, wrote that the day after, quote, is not scheduled to appear for seven weeks, but already it is generating emotional controversy on both sides of the nuclear arms issue. Then on the day of the film's release, culture reporter John Corey wrote that the day after has become an event, a rally, and a controversy. William Palmer's The Films of the 80s, A Social History, remembers that the impact of that single media event so catalyzed public opinion that it influenced the Reagan government to pursue more serious nuclear arms control negotiations with Russia. But then maybe that puts us back in the echo chamber. A possible story, an attractive story, even a likely story, but one that tells us more about the power of Cold War movies than it does about the power of the day after over Ronald Reagan. Still, the day after is one example, only one example of the way that movies were used to replicate, to simulate nuclear war, whether for education or entertainment, for propaganda, or for protest. And that means that the Cold War movies are serious business. We're going to follow the stages of a nuclear war from the early phases of escalation to the fears surrounding the actual launch, to short-term survival, and the eventual precarious balance of civilization, or even the survival of the species, all through the lens of the movies. Nuclear War on Film 
has played an essential role in exploring the possible outcomes and potential realities of a conflict that could be fought only once. These cinematic representations are really a type of war game. They're dress rehearsals for a single disastrous performance. This time on the Cold War Vault. Part 1. The Difference Between Nuclear War and Nuclear Anxiety When we talk about Cold War cinema, if you aren't thinking of the great nuclear disaster classics of the 1980s, then you might be thinking of the monster movies of the 1950s all very much born of Cold War anxiety and exploiting the popular fascination with the new dual forces of geopolitical wariness and radioactive fear. That might be assigning a little too much gravitas to movies about giant ants and mutants. But many reams of paper have been inked talking about Japan's own well-deserved atomic anxiety and the giant dinosaur mutants that spawned. But it isn't a real representation of conflict. And that's what I want to talk about here. You see, it comes down to the difference between nuclear war on film and nuclear anxiety on film. That long decade at the beginning of the Cold War gave us some very serious reflections on the new and dangerous world order, but also peppered it with the cash-grab exploitation, radiation, mutation, environmental devastation, and the concern, still a concern, with many fringe theorists that the dawn of the nuclear age drew the attention of space aliens. But what's lacking in these early films is realism, I have a long bibliography of all the best books to deal with Cold War disasters on film. I'll put it in the show notes. One of those is Paul Bryan's 1987 Nuclear Holocausts, Atomic War and Fiction. Of the more than 800 stories and novels and films in the genre, almost none of them deal realistically with radiation, for instance. In a review of Nuclear Holocausts by Paul Boyer, another author tackling the subject, he wrote, quote, Radiation has been employed as a gimmick to produce bizarre monsters, mind-reading clairvoyants, or races of quasi-fascist supermen. And that's really the kernel of the problem we have when picking apart the body of creative work and film in particular that deals with the dangers of the Cold War. I can't tell you the number of times a student has, with sincerity, asked for a detailed discussion of the comic book Watchmen, having completely missed my point. So what I want to do is discuss Cold War films that set out to sincerely, and for the most part accurately, explore specific elements of warfare and survival. 
Some of those were government films for education. Some were popular films with a slant toward protest. Books really laid the foundation for these. Some are still in the popular mind, some less so. A couple of serious earlier efforts at representing nuclear war might be Neville Shoots on the Beach in 1957 and The Last Day by Helen McCloy in 1959. Pat Frank's Alas Babylon, also in 1959, is an excellent audiobook version performed absolutely perfectly by Will Patton, if you're interested. These each dealt with the post-nuclear war world in different ways and through different lenses, but they took it seriously and tried to render something like a potentially accurate picture of what life and death might look like. Of course, later, even more politically, sociologically, and scientifically informed visions would appear, all of which we'll talk about here. What was unique to these accurate depictions was that they allowed viewers and readers to survive vicariously something they very well might not survive in reality. Some of these were created for education and for reassurance. Some were created to scare the living Christ out of us for political ends. But what they all have in common is that they reconstruct nuclear conflict and simulate potential outcomes. Well, they try anyway. There's a quote from a film scholar named Tony Perrin that's worth keeping in mind. I wish I would have had it in mind when I was young, watching these movies and worrying about the way the world would end. She writes, It is important to remember that the event of wholesale nuclear war has never occurred, so that the relative realism of its depiction is more or less speculative. While that's true, the best of these depictions are really very good indeed. Part 2. Let's have an outline for Armageddon. Documents I've sifted through for the vault, from the highest levels of government, those about civil defense and continuity of government, almost universally make one assumption, that nuclear war would not be a surprise. That the scenario of an unprovoked, or at least surprise, Soviet attack on an unprepared North America would be the rarest case in planning. Instead, These memos speak of a period of rising tension that for those with a keen eye and a good geopolitical head on their shoulders, there would be time to prepare for the coming Holocaust. But this is just the first phase of the crisis. In those government plans, these imaginary wars played out in escalating stages. It shouldn't be any surprise that those stages found their way into Cold War film and became a somewhat fixed part of the nuclear war genre, or atomic cinema, as some scholarly people have termed it. I might use those terms interchangeably here. I'll give you an example. 
1980, there was a war game in Britain called Square Leg. Many of the documents for this were leaked to the journalist Duncan Campbell, who wrote an expose on this late-stage Cold War survival planning on the part of Her Majesty's government called War Plan UK. The details of Square Leg are still classified, and believe me, I've been around and around trying to get them. The archives at Kew say the Home Office has them, Home Office says the Ministry of Defense has them, Ministry of Defense says they're at Kew. Around and around. But in that war game, the phases of planning are defined as before the war, which is the transition to war phase, survival, the strike phase, and recovery, the post-war phase. Luckily, the leak to Duncan Campbell in the 1980s illuminated some of these lost details, and then much of what was revealed in War Plan UK became the foundation for the narrative structure of the BBC's Threads in 1984. In this series, I'm going to expand on these phases of the march to war. In this episode, I want to talk about the visions of escalation through the decades. This is a period when international crises increase tensions to the breaking point, and governments and populations prepare for the big one. It wasn't always the same. While in the 1980s, people are usually depicted as largely helpless, steamrolled by giant forces. In the 1950s, there was still some agency. The ability to build a shelter to save your family through civil defense. Next, we'll dive into what I'll call the launch phase. This is when the nuclear dominoes start to fall. The character of this phase also shifts over the years, from the Soviet aggression of the early days to the mechanical clockwork of doomsday. Rooted in fears of technology and broken systems. The strike phase deals with the immediate response to the falling bombs. How do individuals and their governments brace for impact? And how is the actual attack represented in film over the years? Finally, we'll get to the aftermath. That's fertile ground for speculative science fiction. But I think what's even more interesting is the way that some films have looked at the intermediate and long-term effects of a nuclear war on everything from society to genetics. And hopes for recovery and rebuilding, or a lack of hope, depending on the year. The phases gave a narrative structure to nuclear fictions, and did the same thing for Cold War planners, who were, more often than you might think, in the business of creating fictions of their own. But in both cases, it was an effort to create a window onto what a nuclear war might look like, and what that war might mean for individuals, nations, and civilizations. Part 3. Escalation is the inescapable momentum of doom. What's going on? 
They say the Russians just invaded West Germany. Rapid Soviet tank and artillery advances into the Fulda Gap. Having already captured NATO advanced positions along the West German border, the looming question is, how far will Warsaw Pact forces go? Will the Russians advance straight for the Rhine and defy NATO's declared policy of defense by all means, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons? That clip from the day after sets up a plausible situation, one that was anticipated and trained for in the real world, and then lets the escalating tension unfold. While the superpowers lose their senses, our down-to-earth proxies watch the world unravel. The day after is a late-stage entry, but at the beginning of the Cold War, when the nuclear genre was dominated by media produced by the civil defense agencies, this period before the nuclear strike was shown as a time for orderly, thoughtful preparation. In some situations, this might be a few hours. In a world before intercontinental ballistic missiles, fleets of Soviet bombers provided ample warning and lead time. In less optimistic scenarios, the flash of the bomb would be the only warning and leave just a few seconds to take shelter, to duck and cover. In the years before the Soviet atomic surprise of 1949, when Stalin tested an atomic bomb years before the intelligence community believed possible, a series of reports had come out of the U.S. government agencies that had urged, in various ways, a new plan for civil defense. Many reports, and a few iterations later, the Federal Civil Defense Administration was formed. Its mission statement was to, quote, promote and facilitate the civil defense of the United States in cooperation with the several states. By preparing plans, producing standardized civil defense-related equipment, guaranteeing communications in emergencies, promoting interstate cooperation, and producing educational and training materials. In the earliest days of the atomic age, it's these educational and training materials that formed the majority of media depicting nuclear war. While Hollywood films struggled to move beyond the nuclear threat as a plot device for those mutations and monsters I mentioned, the government and corporate-sponsored films dealt directly with the threat, even if founded on optimistic assumptions or, more cynically, agreed-upon lies. Pattern for Survival from 1950 is one of the earliest educational civil defense films of the Cold War. Journalist and Manhattan Project historian William Lawrence makes an appearance to implore viewers to listen to the important information. Does this mean that we are helpless against an atomic attack? Most certainly not. There is definitely a defense against the atomic bomb provided we faithfully carry out a planned method of defense. Note very carefully what is to follow. For what you are about to see and hear is your pattern for survival. A summary of the basic effects of the bomb follows. 
narrated by famed American journalist Chet Hondley, who asks stoically, At this point, you're going to ask, what chance does that leave us? The film goes on to answer that question with a qualified, pretty good chance. If the proper preparatory measures are followed, including the construction of shelters, the painting of houses white in order to reflect heat, and the development of a constant nervous vigilance, so that one knows the best place to shelter at all points throughout the day, whether given a warning or not. This constant state of alert is reinforced in the 1951 film Atomic Alert, produced by Encyclopedia Britannica for elementary school students. The film states, In this early and troubled stage of the atomic age, our very lives may depend on always being alert. Staying alert and being prepared in the time before the attack were the main messages of the earliest civil defense films. They promoted a state of constant hypervigilance that was not, in the end, sustainable. But it was necessary for survival. It was the new normal. That constant alertness created a weariness with civil defense, a suspicion, a sarcastic eye-roll. Those years of assuming that the world was constantly on the brink broke the American public and created a sense of apathy that undid any good that the civil defense organizations had done. If an average citizen, even a well-intentioned one, assumed that an attack would be prompted by something like escalating political or military tensions somewhere in the world, then that person might be tempted to wait to take action until the newspaper headlines grew sufficiently grim. And that just wasn't going to work with the plan. Civil defense doubled down on permanent preparedness, abandoning the idea of urban evacuation and creating a doctrine of standing and fighting. This idea was put to film in Our Cities Must Fight in 1952. In this remarkable artifact, a question is raised about those who would leave their homes in cities in order to look for shelter in the countryside. The narrative takes the form of a dialogue between two newspaper men struggling to respond to the public cynicism that was already taking hold. This group of self-preservationists is dubbed the Take to the Hills Fraternity and accused of planning, quote, something pretty close to treason by leaving the cities. We see stock footage of World War II refugees clogging European roads in their mass movement away from likely bombing targets. We see staged traffic jams and U.S. civil defense exercises. At first, the argument against evacuation is just that it can't work. The roads couldn't handle the exodus. But this isn't exactly why the civil defense planners don't want the take-to-the-hills fraternity to escape their fates in the city in that period of escalating tension, even if there was sufficient warning. No, the Office of Civil Defense recommends sheltering in place because, well, I'll let the narrator speak to that. 
Another member of the Take to the Hills fraternity. Seems to be quite a few of them. Yes, I'm afraid there are. And the worst of it is that most of them are intelligent people. Good citizens, if you like. But they've made up their minds without thinking. They're letting fear push them. It's pushing them into something pretty close to treason. Thank God most people don't feel that way. But enough of them do to make it a serious problem. You know, there's really nothing to be gained by turning tail and running after an enemy attack. First of all, the highways would be about the most dangerous place you could be. And second, mass evacuation of cities just doesn't work. We know that mass evacuation can never be permitted if only for one reason, an all-important one. The fact that every able-bodied person is needed in the city before as well as after an attack. Our cities must fight. Fear shames those who would shirk their civic duties in a post-attack environment. In the closing lines of the film, one of our two narrators ponders whether courage will prevail. He says, the question is, have Americans got the guts? Then, breaking the fourth wall and speaking right to the camera, he asks, have you got the guts? Have you got the guts? Civil Defense spawned plenty of other films that encouraged the population to stay and rebuild, to evacuate, to stay and build a shelter, and whatever else policy dictated in any given year. But it was consistently contradictory advice, depending more on the government administration than technical facts. Still, there was really no proper representation of escalation in the early days. Just constant jittery vigilance about a surprise attack. In 1953, CBS News and the U.S. Air Force teamed up to produce One Plane, One Bomb. This film documents a civil defense experiment in which a U.S. bomber wing makes a nuclear bombing run on New York City while disguised as Soviets. While the bombers were virtually shot down moments away from New York City, the film is surprisingly frank about the string of failures that had allowed them to get that close. It was a plea for more volunteers and for more money. Now, of course, later we would see the depiction of people running for the hills no matter what their government said, but starting in 1954, U.S. civil defense started to take an interest in making it policy. Radiation had always been an issue for those who stayed, no matter what those early films might have led people to believe. But the size of the bombs had become the real issue. No casual shelter in a basement or a subway station could defend against the new megaton range thermonuclear bombs. So the Take to the Hills fraternity became the new Patriots, able to live to rebuild another day. Operation Scramble was a short film released in 1957. It documents the real evacuation of the St. Louis County Hospital during the nationwide civil defense exercise, Operation Alert, in 1955. The simulated scenario killed 95,000 people and then evacuated the hospital in a convoy. 
The evacuation went just as planned. But in the national exercise scenario, it turned out that the convoy had driven into an area that would have had the maximum amount of fallout, killing everyone. The county didn't know what the state was doing, the state didn't know what the federal government was doing, and so the best laid plans don't always apply in nuclear war. Another truly fascinating television film from 1957 is The Day Called X. Of all of these early era movies, this is one that's definitely worth your time. It's such a sincere and interesting creation. It's a docudrama of the type that we'll see more of in later years that aired on CBS. It takes place in Portland, Oregon, and uses real locals and officials instead of actors. The mayor is played by the real mayor, for example. In the 1950s, Portland had become a national model for civil defense, mostly due to the efforts of a man named Charles Prey. He'd been the state police chief and was appointed to the director of civil defense. In 1956, Portland built a government operations center in Kelly Butte, a small mountain away from the city center. This subterranean civil defense bunker became the first bunker of its kind below the federal level to be hardened against thermonuclear detonations. The film gives a great view of the interior, which has unfortunately since been destroyed. You can also see real footage of the test evacuation of the city during a 1955 drill. 1,000 city blocks in the downtown area were cleared including 29,423 vehicles and 101,074 people in 54 minutes. This was the brief but glorious era of civil defense evacuation. In only two more years, priorities shifted again, this time to the similarly brief era of the family fallout shelter. U.S. Civil Defense gave away plans to anyone who sent in a self-addressed stamp envelope or visited their local concrete block manufacturer. They ranged from a do-it-yourself concrete basement shelter to an elaborate underground shelter requiring earth-moving equipment and $1,000 to $1,500 which is about $8,000 to $12,000 today. In 1960, Two films were produced to illustrate the do-it-yourself techniques laid out in the pamphlet. I really recommend taking a look at the first of these, Walt Builds a Family Fallout Shelter, a do-it-yourself project. It's quaint and cute, and really actually very informative. If I had the space, I would build Walt's block shelter in my own house. Because it's not only hardened against nuclear weapons, it's a great extra room for the grandkids. Well, folks, I'm glad you could come down to see my fallout shelter. Just finished painting it last night. Looks like a nice job, Walt. You know, this shelter is a real good idea. If we should ever have a nuclear war, 
we could get a heavy fallout even though we were not anywhere near the target area. And the film is kind enough to leave you with a message from Leo Hoek, the director of U.S. Civil Defense, who reminds you that no home in America is modern without a family fallout shelter. Because this is the nuclear age. Civil defense films continued in this vein through the rest of the 1960s, explaining the necessity of fallout shelters and other preparedness measures. But that changed, and one film acts as a transition into the next era of civil defense. It's the final entry in the catalog of civil defense films on nuclear preparedness. By 1972, almost no serious attention was being paid to any kind of nuclear civil defense. The specter of nuclear war had outgrown most people's ability to imagine a survival plan worth executing. Khrushchev's suggestion that the living will envy the dead had become an axiom that would carry through to the end of the Cold War. But U.S. civil defense, in its last iteration before it would become FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, saw an opportunity to increase its apparent value, and therefore guarantee its funding, and make its mission about more than nuclear war. The 1972 Your Chance to Live campaign included film and print entries on man-made and natural disaster preparedness, each focusing on a specific area and hosted by the great Peter Thomas. You simply must see Your Chance to Live nuclear disaster. It is easily the most bizarre but artistically interesting film ever created by a civil defense agency. It perfectly embodies both the boundary-breaking film style of the 1970s and the general feeling of apathy that had come over most of the American public in the realm of civil defense. On the surface, it's a meta-film. It's a film about making the film nuclear disaster. The director and the crew are the subjects. Some scenes show the director working with actors, at one point asking Larry not to eat his donut and asking a young girl to look scared as if the bomb just went off. Cut, cut, save the lights. People, come over here, come over here. Okay, look, fine, that was very good. We heard the radio report and everybody was very nonchalant about that. We've heard that same report a thousand times. Nobody's gonna bomb us, there's no, nothing going to go on and everybody was very natural, but look, when the bomb goes off, it's the real thing. You'll feel the heat, you'll hear the noise eventually. It'll be absolutely incredible. Larry, don't eat your donut. You've never seen anything in your life like it. But I'm hungry. But you're hungry, I know, okay. The film goes on to show the editing room and the narrator, Peter Thomas, in a sound booth asking for instruction on how best to deliver lines from the script unsure because he says the words are so frightening. The film closes as a light snow starts to fall. Peter Thomas begins, The thought of nuclear attack and its aftermath is so terrible that most people have put it out of their minds. But not thinking about it, 
and not really thinking seriously about it, uh, it will not make a danger disappear. It only makes, well, preparation impossible. And this can be fatal for preparation, which, of course, can save your life, can only be done in advance of an emergency situation. Hoping to really prepare when something unexpected occurs is futile because they... Okay, start. Let's wait, let's see. Let's wait until it stops, okay? He tries to go on, but air raid sirens begin to wail across the capital. At first, the interruption is met with humor, but as the warning goes on, serious glances are exchanged among the crew. The attack is real, and they have done nothing to prepare. Nuclear disaster doesn't explain how to prepare. Maybe that message would have fallen on the deaf ears of a 1970s public long suspicious of their chances of survival certainly suspicious of the government. The film doesn't describe the threat either. That was well known, and if possible, assumed to be worse than the government could ever admit. Instead, nuclear disaster shows that the concern over civil defense and preparedness had regressed so completely that the message had become a kind of plea for attention rather than any kind of information useful for survival. Civil defense occupies an interesting space in the history of Cold War film. But by the 1970s, a period in the United States marked by the end of the Vietnam War and a resurgence of the various anti-nuclear movements, including nuclear freeze and Greenpeace, a new phase of atomic cinema was beginning. Part 4. War Without Reason or Warning As I've said, the run-up to war, the escalation phase, is a little anemic in the film of the early days, and especially the civil defense reels. In fact, it's usually absent. I think it shows a sense of the inevitability of a nuclear conflict that had become pervasive in society. There was no explanation necessary for audiences to accept a nuclear conflict as part of the plot. The situation was already permanently at the brink, and war could come at any moment without reason or warning. I think The Day the World Ended from 1955 is probably the best way to look at this kind of mentality. It's not really a very serious look at nuclear war, as I'm trying to do here, but it starts with a title card. It reads, What you are about to see may never happen, but to this anxious age in which we live, it presents a fearsome warning. Our story begins with the end. That is followed by a clip of the detonation of Shot Baker during Operation Crossroads in 1946, acting as a stand-in for general nuclear war, as it often did. Most other films follow that model and don't give any particular reason for the war that will destroy civilization. 
The film On the Beach from 1959 actually conspicuously leaves out the cause of the war that is very specific in the 1955 novel that the film is based on. Instead of the novel's elaborate scenario, the film taps a technological glitch or accident that would become a refrain in the genre in later years. The unmotivated surprise attack is also used in The World, The Flesh, and The Devil in 1959, in which an unnamed nation has launched weaponized radioactive isotopes on the United States that eventually result in global depopulation, leaving Harry Belafonte to search for survivors. In all of the films and novels of the nuclear war genre, only a handful between the start of the Cold War and the 1980s do anything to explore the period of escalating tensions before a nuclear war and what effects those tensions have on individuals and societies that are involved. There are two exceptions to this, both ahead of their time in terms of representation of escalation and the war. These are the 1961 Japanese film, The Last War, and the 1964 British film, The War Game. The Last War tells the story of escalating international tensions that lead to nuclear conflict. The film substitutes NATO and the Warsaw Pact with the competing Federation and Alliance. A small incident at sea escalates tensions between the two and war resumes briefly in the Korean Peninsula. Japan urges restraint and negotiations, but dogfights between the Alliance and Federation with nuclear-tipped air-to-air missiles initiate escalation. ICBMs from both sides are launched, and in a dramatic sequence of relatively impressive 1961 special effects, Tokyo is reduced to flowing rivers of lava. Unlike most other films of the period, The Last War doesn't just deal with geopolitical escalation, but the whole film is the story of that escalation. It attempts to show earnestly and realistically the way in which systems of alliance could lead to global nuclear war and how nations with loose or no affiliation to the alliances would likely also find themselves under a mushroom cloud. As the narrator explains, far off in the Mediterranean, a military plane was shot down. Well-meaning men, educated men, met in a room to consider the repercussions of a shooting across the world. One that had nothing to do with Japan or the Japanese people. But as the world had grown very small and was split up into alliances, it did have to do with us. The 1964 film The War Game was written, directed, and produced by Peter Watkins for the BBC. It's the spiritual precursor to Threads and is also a docudrama showing actors and scenarios in a documentary style. Most importantly, it is genuinely an attempt to simulate a nuclear attack on film as realistically as could be allowed. The project worked a little too well, and was too realistic. Once it was finished and screened, the BBC declined to broadcast it. 
The final determination was that the war game was, quote, too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting. The war game describes a deteriorating geopolitical situation that begins in Vietnam, leads to Soviet intervention in Berlin, tactical nuclear exchanges, and an eventual nuclear attack on Britain. This is a carefully crafted scenario that reflects the real-world flashpoints of the 1960s, creating a realistic and possible path to nuclear war. The film begins with a radio announcer describing the state of international affairs. London, Friday the 16th of September. It's just been confirmed that late last night, in order to show collective communist support for the Chinese invasion of South Vietnam, the Russian and East German authorities have sealed off all access to the city of Berlin and have stated their intention of occupying the western half of the city within 48 hours unless the Americans in Vietnam withdraw yesterday's decision to use tactical nuclear weapons against invading Chinese forces. This is all the backdrop for scenes of civil defense preparation around Britain. But the narration goes on to say that evacuations from urban centers have begun, but the success of the endeavor is very much in doubt. Riots have broken out in Berlin, and general scenes of disorder are shown as tensions mount. Though one complaint about the film was that it did not offer a balanced view of the value of deterrence or the efficacy of civil defense measures, it cannot be said that Peter Watkins failed to accurately portray official government plans. Watkins did significant research in advance of the project. He consulted with civil defense planners and read all of the civil defense manuals. The result is a critique of those measures when implemented in actual time of emergency. Ahead of the impending war, mandatory evacuees are involuntarily billeted with unwilling hosts who complain of not having enough food to feed them. Ration books are distributed along with a book titled Your Protection Against Nuclear Attack, which, the dialogue reveals, failed to get into the hands of the public sooner because it, quote, didn't sell too well. The war game seems ahead of its time in its blunt and sometimes clinical portrayal of the period of escalation in nuclear war more generally. The breadth of its scope and concern with scientific accuracy would come to dominate the portrayals of nuclear war in the 1980s. Eventually, the war game was aired on the BBC. In 1985, 21 years after its completion, as part of a series of programs shown in conjunction with the 40th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Japan. The war game was shown one day after a rebroadcast of its 1984 counterpart, Threads, which, when compared, either demonstrated that the war game was well ahead of its time, or that nothing at all had changed in two decades of Cold War planning. Watching them together is a kind of morbid double feature worth the time of any Cold War film or history buff. 
Part 5. The 1980s and the Golden Age of Nuclear War on Film So we make it to the 1980s, when the surprise attacks were few and far between, and a slightly more sophisticated geopolitical view made itself known in films of the genre. The 1980s saw the production of several comprehensive films that explored each of the phases of a nuclear catastrophe. Why do you think that might be? Well, that's a matter for historical speculation, but it seems to be centered around a resurgence of anti-nuclear activism that was mirrored in the media. In 1984, the journalist and author William Prochnow suggested that the vigorous anti-nuclear protests of the 1950s, which coincided with the formation of organizations like the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, were weakened in the 60s by a series of events. The first of these was the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 63, which required that all tests be conducted underground. This had the effect of taking the threat of nuclear fallout out of the public conversation and limiting what had been a stream of graphic images of bombs going off. But the big change was that all of that political energy started to be poured into the Vietnam protests and the civil rights movement in the United States. The very active political left just had new targets. This changed at the end of the 1970s for a couple of reasons. Most obviously, Vietnam officially ended in 1975. In March 1979, the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island brought worldwide attention to the efforts of these anti-nuclear groups that were still fighting the fight. Some of these had warned of the possibility of just such an accident. Three Mile Island sparked protests around the world. In a serious publicity coup, less than two weeks before the accident, the film The China Syndrome had been released, starring Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, and Michael Douglas. That film depicts a similar civilian nuclear power accident. The timing had Johnny Carson say to Michael Douglas, Boy, you sure have one hell of a publicity agent. The fictional and the real converged to intensely promote the cause of the anti-nuclear movement. A few other historical events fed into this big shift back toward activism at the end of the 1970s. On the 12th of December 1979, NATO issued the Double Track Decision which was a commitment to deploy 572 American Pershing II and Griffin cruise missiles in Europe. Two weeks later, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan put a huge strain on U.S.-Soviet relations. In 1980, Presidential Directive 59 was signed by Jimmy Carter and shifted the U.S. nuclear force posture away from an all-out nuclear conflict to one that envisioned a prolonged, tactical, and ultimately winnable nuclear war. Pieces of the document were leaked to the press in the weeks that followed and ignited fierce debate about the implications that planning for a winnable war might have. And then, of course, the election of Ronald Reagan 
with all of its implications, real and imagined. This is the environment in which those anti-nuclear forces that had been described by William Prochnow as distracted for the previous 15 years refocused their attention and set the stage for the final dramatic decade of the Cold War. It was that fervor in the popular culture of the early 1980s that gave us some of the most iconic media representations of nuclear war not just in film, but also in television, literature, even music. Armed with 40 years of information about nuclear weapons and war and the cynicism brought about by 40 years of misinformation and outright disinformation, public opinion really transformed into anti-nuclear activism, at least for a large part of the political spectrum that cut across a lot of party lines. This is why the films of this genre in the 80s bear very little resemblance to what came before. And they're really striking in their clear attempt to confront the threat and provoke debate. The 1983 television film The Day After is easily the most important American depiction of nuclear war on film. It was directed by Nicholas Meyer, written by Edward Hume, and originally conceived as an exploration of the effects of a nuclear war on the United States. Like many films in the genre, trouble starts in a divided Germany. The scenario is fully built out with television and radio broadcasts throughout the period of escalation. The first of these comes after the opening credits when a television news anchor is overheard in the background of the bustling Kansas City Board of Trade. She says, the West has been unanimous in condemning Soviet action and applying economic sanctions, which has not stopped the growing Soviet military presence along the West German frontier. I would play that clip for you, but it's drowned in telephones ringing and people yelling about uh, buying and selling soybean futures. Many of you who have seen the movie, and even those who know it very well, might not realize that the opening scene of the briefing aboard the SAC Airborne Command Post, also known as Looking Glass, is actually taken from a 1979 documentary called First Strike. In fact, all of the very real-looking Air Force sequences look that way because First Strike was filmed in conjunction with the very real Air Force. So that is definitely a film worth finding. As the escalation in the day after progresses, the Soviets begin a military buildup that eventually leads to a blockade. The United States just makes things worse by invading East Germany to free Berlin which leads to heightened tensions. When the Soviets bomb NATO facilities in West Germany, Soviet forces advancing to the Rhine are stopped by tactical nuclear weapons, which begins the tit-for-tat nuclear escalation that quickly becomes a full strategic exchange. We never really know who fired first, 
The film avoids directly assigning blame for beginning the war and ends the war with a ceasefire, the United States and the Soviet Union having endured roughly equivalent levels of destruction. The following year, 1984, Threads aired on the BBC. This is an extraordinary example of nuclear war on film and may very well stand as the pinnacle of nuclear realism in both technical and sociological terms. Famous public physicist Carl Sagan said of it, Threads is everything the day after promised, but didn't deliver. Of course, this is because of the nature of the format. In the US, limitations were put on the violence and the realism of the day after. Basic network censorship. On the BBC, the restraint came after the fact. The film was allowed to be all that it wanted to be. But then after being shown, it was shelved for a year and shown only one more time during a week of programming commemorating the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. After that, it went back into the vault until 2003. The war game from 1964, which I talked about, was also shown during that 1985 commemorative programming block after suffering the same fate in the film vault. It was the first time it was shown on the BBC after languishing for 21 years. Threads actually sprung from the war game. It was commissioned by the director general of the BBC after he had seen the still shelved war game. The intent was to update the original material for the 1980s and make it the most accurate and technically precise nuclear war movie ever made. The writer, Barry Hines, said of the film's purpose, quote, our intention in making threads was to show the actual effects on either side should our best endeavors to prevent nuclear war fail. Unlike the day after or the war game, the spark of the conflict is Iran, and a coup backed by the U.S. to overthrow the Islamic Republic. This makes sense in the geopolitical context of the early 1980s. The Iranian Revolution was still fresh in the mind. It was a major defeat for the U.S. interests in the region, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan threatened to shift the balance of power in the Middle East. In the movie, the U.S. sends troops into western Iran to deter the Soviet takeover of the oil fields, and the Soviets introduce nuclear weapons into their position in the north. When the U.S. bombs the newly established Soviet base, the Soviets respond with nuclear-tipped surface-to-air missiles. The U.S. destroys the base with a tactical nuclear weapon. A lot of attention to detail is given to the mechanics of escalation, making it a much more realistic portrayal than even the day after, which moves into the all-out war phase a little too quickly for my sense of realism. The mechanics of escalation become even more intricate 
in threads when the next day the conflict spreads to the Persian Gulf and into naval engagements. The Soviets blockade West Berlin, and when the USS Kitty Hawk is sunk with a nuclear torpedo, the U.S. blockades Cuba. Two days later, general global nuclear war breaks out. The details are given to the viewer with radio and television broadcasts like the day after, but the documentary or docudrama style also allows for title cards, think PowerPoint slides, that aren't just incidental, but are information heavy. They pause the dramatic action for factual documentary-like downloads of technical information. The period of escalation also offers the opportunity to look at civil defense and preparation like some of the earlier films. But now, by 1984, the best laid plans of the Ministry of Defense and the Home Office had become an ironic laughingstock. Much like civil defense in the United States, by the time all of its functions were collapsed into the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in 1979. And nuclear preparedness was all but abandoned. Actually, I take that back. It was entirely abandoned. But not so in Britain. Starting in 1974, the Home Office started a pervasive media campaign called Protect and Survive. If you grew up there in those years, this jingle should give you some post-traumatic stress. This print and television campaign provided advice for constructing fallout shelters, or inner refuges, as well as suggestions for actions to take in the post-attack period. Threads recreates the advice in the Protect and Survive series, which mostly serves the function of demonstrating how impotent the survival measures really would be. The inner refuge created by an unhinged door and some pillows serves as a place where Mrs. Kemp dies badly, and the much sturdier suburban basement shelter of the Becketts keeps the family alive long enough for looters to come and presumably kill them for canned goods. Spoilers. Sorry. As for the government's own preparations, the details were mostly drawn from a 1982 expose by Duncan Campbell called War Plan UK, the secret truth about Britain's civil defense. I mentioned this earlier. This was a collection of leaked classified material that found its way in high fidelity to Britain's television screens. Threads tests the assumptions made about both civilian and government survivability, and the results are bleak. A voiceover introduces the first hint of preparations in the escalating crisis. Britain has emergency plans for war. If central government should ever fail, power can be transferred instead to a system of local officials dispersed across the country. In an urban district like Sheffield, there is already a designated wartime controller. He's the city's peacetime chief executive. If it should suddenly become necessary, he can be given full powers of internal government. When or if this happens depends on the crisis itself. This chief executive is the city's mayor, C.J. Sutton, in the film, 
who gets a memo that starts the transition to war. It reads, As a result of decisions taken in Cabinet last night, you are requested to undertake an initial review of the emergency arrangements listed in your county war book, Volume 1. The first hint of civilian preparation is increased buying at a supermarket, a scene that can also be found in the day after, almost identically. Two days later, as children play on the grounds of a primary school, bundles of blankets are delivered as the government begins to stock emergency shelters. The official transition to war is illustrated in threads, as it would have been in a real crisis, with a change in the bikini state. This was a system for indicating threat levels similar to the DEFCON or Defense Condition system in the United States. The entrance to Royal Air Force Station Finningley is shown and the base's security alert status is indicated by a Bikini State Indicator, which is a black board with white letters, and it reads black. This sign is changed by hand to a similar board which says amber. This is not good. General civil unrest erupts as fighting breaks out between the United States and Soviet Union. Neighbors of the camps pack their station wagon and attempt to evacuate Sheffield, only to be stuck in an intractable traffic jam of other families with the same idea, the take-to-the-hills fraternity. Hospitals are cleared for casualties, and emergency vehicles are sent to safer distances from the city as potential subversives are arrested under emergency powers. Sutton and the emergency management team take up residence in a makeshift shelter under City Hall. The film really is extraordinary in the way it dramatizes every step of these wartime plans and the protect and survive recommendations to civilians. Thread's masterfully blended published civil defense preparations with previously classified government war plans to create the most realistic depiction of preparation and escalation in the genre. From government and military preparations to the ultimately useless efforts of individuals, it remains the most realistic depiction of nuclear war ever put to film. Part 6. Fear of Wolves in the Woods So, We've talked about the ways that the early days of a potential nuclear conflict, the days of escalation, before the missiles fly, have been represented through the decades. And let's remember, that definitely changed based on the perceived nature of the threat. This might be a surprise attack with no warning, as was the assumption in US civil defense films in the early days. It might be the clockwork of mutual assured destruction, escalating from a regional to a global conflict. In the beginning, the threat was uncertain, and it was everywhere. Insidious, communist plots, spies, and sudden atomic attacks from above. In later years, it was the layer upon layer of strategic tension between the superpowers that might allow a spat in the Persian Gulf to bring down civilization in a global conflagration. These films of the Cold War have a lot to say about the world that created them. Well, as do all films, 
But as historians of the 20th century, and the Cold War specifically, we can move beyond the platitudes that have really worn thin. Have a look at any YouTube comments section for these films and take a tour through radically simplified thought on this matter. Thoughts like, it's even more likely to happen today than back then. Well, no it isn't. And looking at the way these virtual wars started in the films of the Cold War, we can learn a lot about why that is. About how the threat changed over time and the perception of the danger. The way by which a war could start was a reflection of the fears in the culture, not necessarily a reflection of reality. In a lot of ways, because there is a population with such an unsophisticated view of geopolitics, such a lack of fundamental information on the whole magical rainbow of subject knowledge necessary to understand the realities of the situation and therefore the dangers of the situation, we have regressed to that first decade of the Cold War, to the first decade of Cold War cinema, to the time when the enemy was around every corner and the attack would come, as I titled it earlier, without reason or warning, like a fear of wolves in the woods out in the dark. That's what we can learn from the first phase, but we aren't even close to being finished. In the next episode, the next stage of nuclear war as represented in the movies, We'll see how concerns over nuclear security, reliability, and mutual assured destruction manifested themselves over the decades, and how, more often than not, the decision to launch a nuclear war was represented as accidental, or the act of a madman, rather than a calculated attempt to rationally deploy nuclear weapons in the service of a military victory, whatever that victory might have looked like. So. Let's launch the missiles next time on the Cold War Vault. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. It's drawn from original research and papers by me, but then so is every show, which is why they take so long. Still, if you like what I have to offer, please consider subscribing to Patreon, where you'll get all of the documents that go into making these shows. Please like and review anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. On Facebook, I post updates and have very short conversations, but they're very meaningful to me. Remember that nuclear wars may be mostly hypothetical, but hoarding toilet tissue is real. Prepare wisely. Until next time.